ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Music has always been a vehicle for change, intimately interconnected to a history of protest and revolution. And behind the scenes, it's no different. This week on Download This Show, the music industry has long been at the forefront of technological change and transformation. But as the use of artificial intelligence becomes increasingly commonplace, indeed, the music artist Grimes has open-sourced her voice for artificial intelligence, how will society grapple with the ethics of this new technology? And who really owns the final product? My name is Mark Fennell, and this is a very special Future of Music episode of Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show and it's an all-singing, all-dancing extravaganza, except no, it isn't because I have musical skills to speak of. But we are talking about, yes, the future of music. Our guest this week, it's lovely to have back Sosafina Formoli, freelance music journalist and broadcaster. I think we did this with you a couple of years ago, didn't we? We did, yeah. We should make this like an annual thing. Please we do. come back and talk about I the think future we said, of music. I think we said that last time as well. We're like, let's do this again, see how things have changed. <laughs> And here we are. And joining us new, Tim McHenry, Professor of Music at Australian Catholic University. Welcome to Download This Show. Thanks, Mark. There's a slight running joke on the show that you can't go an episode without talking about AI, and I think it's true of the show in general. <laughs> but this time it's relevant. It's specifically relevant to, to music because we do know that in this raft of new AI technologies affecting everything from writing to graphics, music is also facing some of the same issues. Some people might have seen the story that came up with musical artist Grimes allowing AI to use her voice. I just kind of want to start there, Sosafina. Like, Mm -hmm. what was it about that story that kind of took your interest initially? It scared me, for one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, it kind of tracks for Grimes, you know. Uh, She of the Elon Musk marriage house. It took my interest because I thought that the the way that AI is becoming, I guess, more normalised in terms of lexicon and just in terms of, you know, being in the music world, this whole Grimes thing has been really interesting, but I don't know, it makes me feel a little uneasy. So the story here is that she let, she loaded up her voice into AI and let other people create songs using her voice. Would that be the simplest definition of it? I think so in layman's terms. But, yeah, a big part of the story was that she said that she would also share 50% of profits of any successful AI-generated song they used her voice to. So obviously that's going to start turning heads when we start thinking about, okay, well, there's a bag to be gotten out of this. There's money to be made. And that's the most interesting part of the story. It's how money flows Mm -hmm. through the industry to support particular types of activities. So, you know, the technology to sample somebody's voice has existed for a long time and maybe AI will do it more cleverly and it'll be harder to pick up and um, harder to track in terms of copyright. But if we can establish an ethics of use that includes payment back to the artist, then this could be really interesting. I think that was the part of the story that actually intrigued me the most, right? Because we've seen a slew of headlines about people creating fake versions of, you know, songs by the weekend and things like that. Like that has been around, but I thought what was interesting to me, I guess, mostly out of the Grimes story is that she proposed a mechanism by which an artist, her, got paid. Let's bear in mind, like this model only works if you're already quite famous, right? 
50% to the person that uses AI, 50% to the person that the AI is built on. Just how do you feel about that ratio? Deeply unrealistic. Yes. <laughs> I was just going to say that, yeah. You know, an artist from a stream might get 16% uh, for a song they've written and recorded uh, and all of the distribution, the record label, mm-hmm. uh, the, the agents, you know, there's a lot of mouths to feed. And taking 50% when it's not really your song, it's just your voice, which you're licensing, that's a big cut, an unrealistic cut. And in fact, I I think what is most interesting about Grimes' statement is the fact of the press release and the conversations we're having about the press release. Definitely. I mean, I think 50% it's unrealistic. It's also delusional, which is Mm. why when I first saw it go up on Twitter, I'm like, she's just tweeting late at night. That's the only way that model works. She's dreaming. Indeed. It's a brain fart, right? But is there anything within that brain fart that the rest of the industry, musicians listening to this, managers listening to this, is there anything within that that they can identify that, hey, that's a useful kernel that we can build a potential new pathway on? I think the pathways exist. Mm. You know, when you think about loops and samples, there is something called mechanical copyright, which means if someone samples some of your uh, recorded music, there is a mechanism to ensure that royalties flow and you'll be sued. Vanilla ice, ice ice baby. Yeah. You know, you can see spot on where, where it goes wrong and the consequences of it gro- going wrong. When you purchase industrial samples, somebody has made those and somebody's been paid for them. And they kind of have a use by date in the sense mm. that particular types of samples, you know, they become very familiar and you need to make new ones. The same thing will happen with AI. You know, Grimes' voice will produce a certain amount of music until we're bored with it. Actually, on the question of who owns what, right? There's been a bit of an open debate as to if AI is learning to create a sound based on your voice, your style, and then it goes off and makes something new, does that real human have any discernible rights over what that AI creates if it couldn't have created it without that first learning experience? I'll give a philosophical answer. Uh, AI has no rights and humans have all the rights. Right. In terms of the legal framework of copyright, it's much more complicated than that um, in the sense that AI makes stuff up that is hard to track down. Sometimes it's obvious where it's got it from. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the thing it's drawing on isn't owned in the first instance. So you can't own 4-4. You can't own a D major chord. It's tricky. The the other tricky aspect is copyright means different things in different places. Um, There isn't an absolute moral assessment of who owns what in music. It's a legal definition that differs from one jurisdiction to another. I could only agree in less <laughs> academic terms. Um, I'm here for it. Like I was saying before, it's. I feel like once we start thinking about, you know, how much we're giving over to AI or what is how much we are relinquishing through those experiences, it, it does get super, super murky, which is why I find the conversations around potential changes to copyright standards really interesting because if we look at the music economy and the economy of the industry as it pertains to artists being paid fairly, um, original material being respected and honoured, that's fractured as it is, let alone us now looking at different yeah. ways of technology supposedly emerging to to elevate or to amplify, you know? I agree. Um, you know, there is a sort of ethical dimension to music practice, which includes AI and copyright, and there's also a legal framework that it exists in. The legal framework is always catching up Mm. with technology and changes in practice. And so that will 
follow its own course with AI. Something will happen. For me, the more interesting thing is the ethics. And I reckon in terms of dealing with AI, the first thing is to declare the use of AI, to always say, yeah, AI this generated. Is, yeah. Um, and until we can collectively agree on that, then there is the danger of people losing their job, of um, consumers not understanding that they are party to a kind of deconstruction mm. of parts of our society that we re- really value. This is going to sound terrible, but do you reckon listeners care? I don't think that sounds terrible. I feel like that's kind of where we're at at the moment. And, I mean, we could talk about the way music consumption is changing you know, throughout. Because it's related, right? It, it's mm. totally related. And I, f- I feel like that's where Tim makes a really good point. If it's declared and if people have more, I guess, accessible ways to discover knowledge about this technology and how it's sort of relating to their listening experience, I think they'd maybe care more. But I feel like there's such a memification <laughs> of <laughs> this technology at the moment. Nobody cares. Well, I guess the, the thing that I'm sort of thinking about is like a lot of people acquire new music essentially just through listening to streaming services that often get to know you and algorithmically start chucking you songs you might know and like. And sometimes you know who that artist is and sometimes you don't, right? So already there are things being loaded into people's Spotify and Apple Music playlists that they don't necessarily know every artist they're listening to if you just chuck it on like that radio function, right? If you've got AI that can effectively recreate stuff that because it knows what you like, if AI gets good enough to inject made-up songs into your playlist that you weren't really paying attention to, do you think that actually enhances people's care about what happens to musicians or does it make them go, oh, well, I guess the computer can do it now? Like I, I, guess, I'm, <laughs> I guess what I'm kind of understanding is like, is there a way in which this declaring could horribly backfire? Do you see what I'm getting at? I do. Uh, I mean, I'm not convinced it'll get there in the sense that particularly, you know, the formative time of music taste development, teenagers, adolescence, it's about a human connection. They see something in the artists they like that resonates with them. And I don't know that they'll see that in a kind of soulless AI. I I could be wrong, of course. But here's the thing. Somebody sets up those algorithms. So it's almost a reflection on what is it to make music because somebody has to say, okay, we're going to take a little pinch of this, a little uh, this type of drum beat, this type of chord progression, this type of sound world, this type of uh, song structure, and we're going to plug those in and it's going to generate music we think you'll like. Well, there's still a human undertaking a creative act in the Mm. midst of that. Mm. And it's the ethics of that creative act that, that are interesting. But I'm not convinced people will go for it. You know, you asked, will people care? They care in as much as they know. Yeah. You know, I'm wearing clothes right now. I think I paid enough for those clothes that I don't think I've supported slavery. But I'm not sure. I care. And the more I know, the more I care. And I think it would be the same with, uh, you, you know, the creation mm. of music. The more people know about what they're listening to, the more they are going to care. Also, I feel like now more than ever, music discovery has that feels so much more important now. Like I know with my listening habits, um, if even if there's music on in the background or if, you know, my Spotify playlist has gone from, like it's finished playing an album and then it'll just go on to something that it thinks that I'll like based on what I've been listening to, I feel like our ears are still quite fine-tuned to grabbing onto something and being like, oh, hang on a second, I'm going to go down that rabbit hole yeah. and discover that artist. Like I still feel like there's that element of the music listening experience that people still care about because then you you feel like you've got slight ownership over that experience yeah. too. Yeah, and, and particularly when 
taste is forming and people are exploring. Mm-hmm. They're looking for difference. They're looking for not simply nostalgia. They're looking for more than that. Now, if the algorithm works simply to feed you what you already like, my belief, and this is just total speculation on my part, is it'll be like listening to the same song over and over again. The first 50 times, you'll love it, but eventually it starts (laughs) to wear on you. And if all the algorithm is doing is saying, we have identified that these particular musical features are in the centre of your taste and we'll keep feeding them to you, then it will be like a meal without sustenance. Mm. It will be like I'm eating a lot, but I'm not, I'm not feeling You're full. Not satisfied. And it's the human connection because in the end, music is someone talking to someone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose a really cynical interpretation of that would be that's just another data set that the, the, the robot <laughs> needs to learn, that it'll get sick of those, for, you know, those chord progressions in about 205 plays time, so make sure you alternate at some. Like, I guess, how much do you think the human connection matters when it comes to music? Mm-hmm. I think it, it is crucial, even just thinking about what the last few years have been like. I've known musicians who have quit creating art just because they haven't been able to have that connection on a on a human level mm. when it comes to performing but also that's bled into how they're listening and how they're approaching music as well and then on the other side of that spectrum musicians who had been almost dormant had been inspired again because they realized how important it was to you know have those sort of fires stoked And that only comes with listening to music, exchanging conversations about music. That sort of need and desire for that uh, connection has only been elevated, especially in the last few years. And now we're starting to see the, the payoff of the artists who we discovered during lockdown, the artists who kind of were creating music out of their bedrooms and now they're global superstars because they've really sort of curried and cultivated a global community when people couldn't be out seeing anything. There's a human connection with listening to music, then there's a whole different experience when you're seeing it live. And when we had that element stripped away and all we had to rely on was listening again, I feel like that really enforced, reinforced to people how important a role music can play in actually fostering relationships, fostering networks and fostering community. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the hierarchy of how music exists, um, live performance is at the top of that hierarchy. Mm. People meeting with other people. And COVID demonstrated the extent to which that is important to us and how much we miss it when it's taken away. And while we're super creative and super good at creating substitutes, that live human connection Mm. nevertheless is at the front of it. And in terms of how we consume and process music, it's always been about um, what is the mind of the person that does this? What is the character of the people that listen to this? That's what music history is. It's not simply a charting of of songs and a, a list of styles. It's an understanding of how humans navigate this space. It has been said over the last sort of decade or so, particularly with the rise of streaming services, that music has gone from being a product, you buy a a CD, you buy a a vinyl record, to being a service, to being something that you kind of pay for in a flattened out capacity in it. Do you think that transition from product to service and that always on capacity, do you think that's changed the depth of the relationship with music at all, particularly in the last couple of years, Sosafina? I think there's there's probably an element of that. I mean, I, I I feel like I'm less likely to seek out music as much as I maybe would have done 
when we didn't have it, you know, available on our phones 24-7. Like you, you don't necessarily have that, you know, urgency to go to your local CD store to get the, the latest record by your favourite artist because you're not tracking release dates like you mm. would have back then. Whereas now it's like, okay, well, you've got a new Music Friday playlist or, you know, you've got playlists that you know are going to be generated every week at a certain time. So you, you know that there's a day that you can just log on, check it out. Tim, do you feel that streaming has changed our, I guess, emotional relationship with music? It's certainly changed the nature of the transaction. I don't mm. think it's changed the emotional relationship. What, what we're describing here is the effect of the transition from, you know, a, a digital object, a CD or a file, uh, something from Napster, through <laughs> to the sort of streaming type model. And mm. that there is a transition, particularly for us, for people who've lived through that. Looking at young people learning music and young people at that formative stage, they are still demonstrating that intense interest in particular artists. And they have ways of ordering their knowledge that aren't the same ways. I'm like you. I would have CDs and records. And that was how, in my mind, I would keep track of my music. Mm -hmm. But I... I was just re-stripping the skin on my Napster. Like, that was my thing. Was it Winamp skins? That's what I used to change. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Look, young people um, still have their music and through playlists, Mm. through the sort of communities that they belong to, through the the way that they they talk about, this is still meaningful for them. I think as uh, adults who have established musical taste, streaming does come with the risk of a very casual relationship with music because we can get anything. I think you've got to be quite deliberate about maintaining the commitment. Otherwise, streaming will perhaps facilitate uh, a confusing world in in the future. Mm. Mm. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And all this episode, we are looking at the future of music. Our guest this week, Sosafina Fuamoli, who is a freelance music journalist and broadcaster and Tim McHenry, professor of music at Australian Catholic University. And over the years, much has been made of TikTok the social media services' ability to break artists. Now that TikTok has matured in the marketplace, does it still fulfil that role, Sos? I have many thoughts on TikTok. (laughs) And uh, and I stand ready to receive them. And uh, its relationship with music, you know, new artists coming into the game, but they're of that TikTok generation, right? So they're creating music to ostensibly fit a model to go viral. You know, from from a media perspective, the amount of music that I'm getting serviced now, especially in the pop world and the rock world, they're shorter, they're more concise, they all kind of follow similar chord progressions, even if it's not intentional. And more often than not, the base of a pitch will be around, here are the TikTok playlists that this will be perfect for. Here's how many followers they've got on TikTok. Here's the 30-second grab that we teased out to our TikTok fans that have gone viral already. So here's why you should play this song on the radio. Here's why you should write about it. Now, while I am completely aware that it was the same sort of model when Spotify first became a thing. You know, artists who want to chart on Spotify are going to be making their front half of their albums the more playlist friendly. I get that that's going to change the way artists are making music. I just feel like it's sort of leaning too far into murky territory when we start to see a whole generation of artists creating music dictated by a technology that is changing so often, you know Um, what I mean? I mean, I guess there is an argument that 
technology has always changed sound, right? Totally. Like, like when radio comes in, when vinyl comes in, it changes the shape of pop music around that era. I guess yeah. what I'm, and I, I, I've sort of surrendered to it a little bit, but I, I guess what I'm curious is, is like, if you look at music coming out now, can you identify music that's been made with an eye to becoming, you know, something that people use on TikTok? 100%. What, 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 okay, so tell me what I'm listening out for. What, what should I be listening out for when somebody has like pre-TikToked it? <laughs> Pre-TikToked it. Again, if it's under like two and a half, if it's two and a half minutes, 100% it's been made for playlisting. And again, I'm using pop and sort of indie rock as specific examples because that's generally what I'm working in at the moment. But the production is super bright. The packaging of it is like super high end. It's glossy. It's punchy. It's to the yeah. point. And It'll if be you can modularized, so exactly divided into fifteen second lots. Yeah, yeah it's, ah, if, if see, you that's can, interesting. If you can break it down into a snippet that can be choreographed, you can have a dance choreographed to it in like twenty seconds or less. That's a TikTok song, baby. Also, if it sounds good even after it's been slightly sped up, is my new favorite one. Yeah. Are there things that you can hear, Tim, where you're listening to new music tracks and you're like, oh, yeah, that's been designed for, to go to go viral? A- absolutely. And it sounds terribly arrogant, but I can hear it across history too. There has always been an extent to which music is created for a context. Technology, the design of instruments, uh, the demands of the audience, mm-hmm. um, y- you know, that the performance context in which something exists determines decisions that musicians have to make about the music they're writing. For me, the question is, are those constraints likely to generate useful musical outcomes that can transcend uh, the circumstances in which they were created? Or or is it going to create a dynamic where this music is not really good for anything other than what it's been made for? The good thing is, you know, with this sort of TikTok phenomenon, it happens enough and then there's a reaction against it. There's a rebellion. (laughs) Um, The history of music is is characterised by people finding a way to do things, knowing it'll work well, then it becoming exhausted and new musicians coming along and saying, no, I'm not going to do it that way. And so the cycle will continue endlessly. One of the interesting things I've noticed in the last couple of years is a a sharp rise in copyright cases. I guess the most famous one in the last couple of months has been Ed Sheeran's copyright case, which he won, literally pulled out a guitar. Why is it, Tim, (laughs) that we're seeing so many of these cases at the moment? Is there something that's shifted in music? It's money. It's money, always money, money, money. money. money, money. So money, here money, I am money. thinking there's some like deep <laughs> philosophical thing that shifted. Nope. Good old-fashioned money. So over the last 16 years, the industry has reestablished itself to the point now where music recording is making money again. It's making as much money, um, you know, since about 2002. So it's sort of rebuilt its business model and now serious money is flowing. In the end, you go to court because you want money. Uh, And there is money to be had and that's why there are more cases. Well, that was depressing. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) I could give you some interesting takes on copyright cases. I I, I provide um, expert opinions on these things. And I'm successful only by virtue of the fact that they never go to court. And I am appearing on behalf, not appearing, but I am writing an opinion on behalf of usually a small artist who's having a bit of standover tactics by a large studio who, mm. who, who would very much like it if there were 80 songs 
in existence and they owned them all. Wow. Uh, and whatever music you heard, they would get a cut. That, that's the perfect world for some of these large music labels. Mm. And, you know, we've got to stand up for creativity because there are some things you cannot own. As I said before, you can't own 4-4. You can't own D major. Wait, is that uh, supposed to be your less depressing addendum? <laughs> it is. It is because, you know, um, you see some getting to court. You see the artists winning. Uh, Ed Sheeran yeah. won is the point. And frankly, Ed Sheeran should have won. So, Zafina, the Albanese government has uh, brought in a national five-year policy to revive the arts. It's literally called Revive. What does it do for the music industry? Is it enough? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I can only speak from the perspective of someone who lived in Victoria during the last few years. So forgive me if I sound potentially broken, more broken PTSD, or cynical yeah. than those things. Um Look, the, the Albanese government's dedication to reviving the arts industry is already doing a lot more than I think a lot of us expected of any other previous government uh, in, you know, recent memory. So it's hard for me not to think about government initiatives, whether or not it's throwing millions of dollars at a live music program to injecting more money into the revival of music venues or, you know, turning other you know, non-music spaces into music spaces, it's hard for me to look at that and be like, all right, well, if this is allocated over five years, then what's what's the long-term plan? Because I feel like so often working in music and for a lot of musicians as well, we're so used to having that sort of, it's like a freelancing mentality. It's a constant hustler mentality of being like, okay, well, here's a lovely meal that's been presented to me, but I know that that's going to finish at some point and nobody can guarantee me where that next meal is coming from. Yeah, I have a little bit of a bittersweet and contentious relationship with anything to do with that right now. Tim, uh, what would you like to see? Let's go with that. Mm. Well, that's that's a great question. I've got a lot of sympathy for what Sos has to say here. The policy is saying the right words, but it needs to be more than words. It needs to be legislative and it it needs to involve money, but it can't just be money because when the government pays the arts, you end up with an audience of one. The government. And we've seen lots of examples in recent history mm -hmm. uh, around well-meaning government interventions, and sometimes not so well-meaning, um, <laughs> th that distort creative practice. Uh, I think back to Paul Keating's uh, creative reforms. He, he was a real lover of the arts, but where he spent the money? Distorted yeah. outcomes. So what we need to understand is that music is an ecology of practice and that while we might have individual stars, those stars grow out of a culture of tens of thousands of people doing music. Create a government policy that has widespread doing and appreciating and paying for music, and then you'll get a good outcome. Mm. Try to get content requirements on streaming services. Try to legislate that. Try to have these big businesses who profit off the Australian marketplace to who use, you know, our infrastructure to be able to actually support our culture because we can't expect anyone else to support it. We can't mm -hmm. sort of look at the Australian artist who does well overseas and say, isn't that great? So the policy saying the right things, but they've got to back it up with legislative action mm -hmm. and money dedicated into the right areas and flicking money at some virtuosos and reforming some performing venues or rejuvenating yeah. performing venues, that won't cut it. No. You know, the, the, still there's such a lack of support for Australian artists on radio. There's still, mm. is, you know, um, a lack of support for export 
here, which is why we're seeing so many Australian artists specifically bypassing their own industry to go overseas where there is already an inter- an international market that has been supported and set up to receive them. So in a way, like Tim was saying, the, the money is fine, but it's like how do we actually build a, an infrastructure, a sustainable model that makes artists here who are developing want to develop here, but also the artists who have already been creating here want to stay. Exactly. We are out of time. Huge thank you to our guests this week. So, Safina Formoli, freelance music journalist and broadcaster, thanks so much for joining us once again on Download This Show. <laughs> Let's do it again next year. We should, shouldn't we? Uh, Tim, yeah. you want to come back? Absolutely. We can see if our <laughs> predictions were right. Yeah. We can. Uh, Tim McHenry is Professor of Music at Australian Catholic University. Thanks so much, Tim. Thank you. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.